And welcome back to another episode of Off the Bench with Canel and Bell. Tommy Tran, thanks for joining me today. We're going to chop up a whole lot of mess. Ooh, man, not only do we have football stuff, but we got basketball to talk about. Yeah. I mean, boy, Dub Nation, there are some question marks certainly surrounding the Warriors. Right? Yeah, some of the Warriors, the Celtics. Um, you Jimmy got Butler. Jimmy Butler. Welcome to Off the Bench with Danny Cannell. Raja Bell. It's all the future of football right before your eyes. Just yell it out, man. He can't guard me. All right, so I know this time yesterday on the pod, you guys were talking about with Casey Kiernan, like Le'Veon Bell got the deadline till four. Well, yep. now we know that the deadline has come and gone. No Le'Veon Bell to play this season. Gives up $14.5 million on the plate. And the general manager actually responded through the Steelers Twitter account, Kevin Colbert, saying, quote, I want to confirm that Le'Veon Bell did not sign his franchise tender today. And as a result, he will not be eligible to play during the 2018 season. And we've chronicled Le'Veon Bell spending his time in Miami, then leaving to Pittsburgh, but not actually meeting with the Steelers. So, we know what happens in terms of him and not playing this year, but what happens next? We got our guy Brady Quinn to break it down. Thanks, guys. And I think the question that everyone's asking themselves right now in regards to Le'Veon Bell is what happened? What happened between Le'Veon Bell and the Pittsburgh Steelers? Well, on the player side of things, I feel like he took a hit to his ego because the Pittsburgh Steelers didn't offer him the contract that he was hoping for after putting in all the work, having all those carries and touches throughout the years that he felt like he deserved. And on the team side, look, they set the precedent a long time ago. They don't give big signing bonuses. They don't give a ton of guaranteed money. So Le'Veon Bell was never going to get the deal that Todd Gurley got, which probably only made things worse. So what happens now? Well, after the season, since obviously Le'Veon Bell can no longer play in 2018, he will most likely become a free agent. I can't imagine that the Pittsburgh Steelers would franchise tag him or even transition tag him to that extent. And once he does become a free agent, where does he go? Well, best fits in my mind are... Indianapolis Colts. They're going to have the cap space to sign them to somewhat of a lucrative deal, which I'll get to in a minute. And it really fits their scheme. When you match them with Frank Reich's system and Andrew Luck at quarterback, they could use the help, and he would be a perfect fit for what they want to do. The next team on the list, the New York Jets. They're going to have a lot of cap space as well. You'd like to pair them with a rookie quarterback and Sam Darnold. The question is going to be, do they have a new head coach? And does that new head coach want to bring in a guy like Le'Veon Bell who maybe doesn't you know, know so much about his character after deciding this an entire season of football and forfeiting $14.5 million in salary. So that's what's out on the forefront. The question is, is Livio Bell going to get the deal that he wants? Everyone kind of assumes that because he's going to become a free agent, there will be that one team, that one suitor that's going to pay him the money that he wants. But if you think about some of the top paid running backs in the NFL right now, Todd Gurley, David Johnson with the Arizona uh, Cardinals. You look at a guy like Devontae Freeman uh, with the Atlanta Falcons. All those guys signed extensions with the teams that drafted him. And I'm kind of curious to see how this is going to play out because maybe there's a question that teams are going to be curious to see what type of player Le'Veon Bell is. Maybe he does have too much wear and tear. And is he going to be really worth that big money contract that he's looking for? So all that's going to be yet to be determined. But at the end of the day, Le'Veon Bell, he's going to hit the free agent market. And it's going to be crazy to see where he ends up going. Back to you guys. All right, Brady, certainly appreciate it. And, Raja, interesting to get your take because the teams that Brady mentioned, the four teams that he thinks fits, none of them is a perfect fit because it's either 
someone's going to give him the money, but they're not very good. Right. Or maybe they're a good team and they don't want to maybe bring in Le'Veon Bell and the baggage that he might bring in. It's almost like if, a, and if an NBA team had a super max deal, but they're not very good, they're a lottery team every year, or if it's a, a contending team and then they don't want to have to worry about the headaches. Speaking of headaches, we may talk about that with the Warriors. Le'Veon, right. What do you think there? Uh, it's going to be interesting. I think, you know, Le'Veon Bell, obviously, the priority was, was, getting paid, which it should be. You're a professional athlete, right? That's your business. Um, but, I, I mean, man, it was unprecedented for him to give up $14.5 million. Like, you don't make that money back as a pro. So just starting there, um, this was always – this was interesting to me. I didn't see it playing out like this. In terms of the teams going forward that I think would probably be the best fit for him, I'd probably go with the Colts. They'll, they'll have the money, and they have the quarterback. And it's a quarterback-driven league. Um, not to mention that when, when you're a wear and tear type of back, like, there is something to be said for not having to play outdoors. You're going to be in that dome a lot. Um and, and, and really, when you're talking about getting money, um, and apples to apples, then it becomes whether I can win and whether I have that quarterback in place to win. And Sam Darnold is a good young player, but he's, he's not Andrew Luck right now. And Andrew Luck seems to be, you know, rounding into his old form coming off the injury. So for me, the best fit is the Colts, but that's obviously, um, taking into account that everyone's kind of offering the same deal, right? Cause Levin's already told you he's about his money. And that's why he's given up the $14.5 million, did not want to play because he wants to get paid long-term, and so we'll have to wait and see. And on the other side, too, for Pittsburgh, and Brady mentioned a little bit, they're playing well. James Connors fitted really nicely, so they haven't missed Le'Veon Bell in terms of a production standpoint. They continue to win, so really um, they keep on rolling without having to bring back their all-pro running back. Yeah, and, and look, from a franchise perspective, if you're going to – um, you know, have a philosophy and theirs is that they don't give the big large sign and bonuses and they're not going to overpay. I'm okay with you sticking to your guns. Like I'm fine with that. I just worry that, you know, if you don't get over the hump this year and yet things seem to be working out well, right? Like James Conner's playing great. Offense is, is clicking, not nearly the same amount of distractions that you've had in years past. I don't know that it's fair to hang all that on Le'Veon Bell, but it, it's not happening. So maybe there's something to that. But if you shouldn't win this year uh, and you've missed out on having those guys there and now Le'Veon's not there and you don't get it done, uh, do you regret it? Like as a franchise, do you say, man, we had this window of opportunity where we had these guys and we didn't capitalize on it? Um, and, and, and how does that play out? Right. But I, I'm with franchises sticking to their guns, um, and, and, and not changing philosophically who they are. But I wonder if they regret that if they don't get the Super Bowl. Guys, do we have the odds for Le'Veon Bell and, and his next team again that we can kind of show up and put up on the screen? It, it'll be interesting. You mentioned the Colts. I think that'll be a big fit. All of the other NFL analysts that we've spoken to, that locker room dynamic said, hey, Le'Veon Bell's taking his business here. We see the odds, of course, Jets, Raiders, Eagles, Colts are down there is what uh, Brady certainly liked. If he comes into that, you know, because Brady and I were actually talking on HQ last hour, and he said, well, there may be a question mark. Does Frank Reich want a player like Le'Veon Bell? But I think they understand the business aspect of it, so you can get a key player, and he seems to be in the right mind. That should be a good fit. Yeah, look, I think Le'Veon Bell has always what the, the money situation is. That's just business, okay? Like, you know, yeah, feelings got involved there in Pittsburgh, but at the end of the day, that was business. That was one side the Steelers saying we don't we don't subscribe to paying people that, and it's the other guy saying, look, I'm worth this. That's that's business. So you have to compartmentalize that, take that off the, out of the equation. The question is, is Le'Veon Bell a bad teammate once he hits your locker room and he hits your field? I don't have the answer to that. I'm not in their locker room. The only thing I've ever really heard him gripe about is getting touches. And if you're going to bring him into a system where you're going to feed him, then you really have nothing to worry about, right? Because he's going to get his touches. You've, you've satiated the need to get paid, so that's taken care of. And so you probably have a guy who's motivated to go out there and produce for you because you're taking care of him. So um, I don't see that as being such a huge issue once he hits the field, provided he's gotten the deal that he wants. Now, if there's no market for him, and he's got to take a huge haircut on what he what he gets paid next year, and you drop him into any situation, you might get a disgruntled guy, and then you'd have to worry about it. But provided he gets his money, and you're going to give him the touches, mm -hmm. I think you're good to go.
All right, that's the latest on Levy Month. By the way, I have him in two of my fantasy leagues. I had to drop him. <laughs> I've been holding out. I was so stubborn. You're I'm like, waiting. he's going to come back week three. Yeah. I even got some trade offers. Dave Richard, our fantasy guy, offered me James Conner. He said, hey, you're guaranteed a Steelers running back the whole year. I said, nah, I think I'll be okay. He'll come back week three yeah. or four. Then it's six or seven. Mm. Now it's ten. So i got to eat that a little <laughs> bit. Uh, and I'm sure a lot of fantasy owners uh, have as well. So we hinted a little bit about, and I was talking about locker room dynamics. Yeah. Right now, the NBA's version of Camelot resides in Silicon Valley and the Golden State Warriors. And boy, things have certainly kind of evolved in the last 24, 48 hours right now. We'll get you caught up in a little bit, but let's start with the Kevin Durant after last night's win against the Hawks talking about Draymond Green. Hey, Kevin, have you and Draymond been able to hash anything out? No. Do you see that happening anytime soon? I'm sure it will. We got a long season ahead. Yeah. Um, Translate that for me there, Raja. That, I don't want to talk about this right now. I'm still pretty pissed about what took place. But um, he and Draymond have always had this relationship. Like that, I don't know if people remember it, but they're, they've always had a little back-and-forth thing. They take little jabs at each other. It's kind of like a little um, passive-aggressive, snarky type of relationship they have. And, and um, look... Both guys were wrong the other night. Draymond Green should have given that ball up. You give KD the ball in that situation. That's what he's KD. Uh, nine out of ten of those situations, though, Draymond bring it up. You know, he's an accomplished NBA All Star, a very good player. Uh, but I need the ball in my scorer's hands, the guy who's going to potentially take the shot, not just look to facilitate in that situation. But I think KD uh, he he approached it wrong too because he was the leader of the team. Like you know, you're out there. Um, clearly, you're the alpha. Don't go over there and kill it. The guy already knows he made a mistake. You go down there with six seconds left, you turn the ball over, you feel bad enough. You had a chance to get us into overtime or, or get the win. You feel bad enough. So to have KD come down on top of him like that when he probably should have been lifting him up a little bit, I think KD handled it wrong as well. So from both sides, they handled it wrong, and then it just blew up. It certainly blew up because what you had was the altercation on Monday night at the Clippers, and then on Tuesday before the game against the Hawks, Draymond Green suspended one game without pay, and I was in California before I moved out here. I grew up in the Bay, covered the Warriors in terms of at least they were in our TV market with the Lakers out in Fresno, California. And there is a report out there from Marcus Thompson from The Athletic. He's mm -hmm. a Warriors insider, knows the team well, has written a book about Steph Curry, has one coming out with KD. He has come out with some stuff in terms of the dynamic of that locker room a little bit in terms of Draymond Green giving KD a little bit of flack, maybe more than some, because KD, you know, and in, in this era of NBA, we're seeing a lot of two-and-ones, one-and-ones, basically KD saying, I'm going to keep my options open. Right. And so, you know, that spilled over a little bit into the pending free agency of Kevin Durant, who can become a free agent. And you mentioned Draymond Green. Him and KD have gone into each other. Draymond and Steve Kerr. Remember when Draymond was shooting too many threes before? Yep. But at that point, he only got fined. Right. Time, he actually got suspended. And guys that are supposed to have his back, according to Marcus Thompson in his report, you know, Bob Myers, the, the GM, even Steve Kerr, they're really taking a stance here Bob, yeah. by suspending him for a game, and they won without him. What did you think of that? Well, I think you have to take the stance, right? Like... No matter how bad you don't want to take the stance, when a guy crosses a line in a heated exchange like that in front of teammates, something has to be done. Um, and, and I mean, in most situations like that, I'm not even taking into account that you've got maybe the best player on the planet who's going to be a free agent and you're trying to keep him. So you certainly want to show Kevin Durant as an organization, you're going to have his back and you're not going to let one of his teammates kind of verbally assault him like that. Um, you, all of us have been in arguments where 
you say something that's like really deep down inside you, you wish you hadn't said it, but you can't take it back. That was Draymond Green's moment there with Kevin Durant. And when I was on yesterday, they asked like, you know, could this be a chink in the armor? And I said, no, I don't think so. But I didn't have all the information. And now as it comes out, this will be something going for you. Like I, I could sit here right now and tell you that if I had to bet, I would bet Kevin Durant does not come back to Golden State. But here's the deal too. Now that we know the information about the friction in the locker room, at the very least, legit tension, right? Mm-hmm. They may be good enough to win it anyways. So they could go through the season, get to the finals and win. I put the analogy out briefly on HQ and it's like, remember when Tom Brady and Bill Belichick, all that stuff came in with Alex Guerrero and the yeah. tension there. Well, they went on to the Super Bowl. They lost, but when's the last time we've talked about that since? True. Winning can cure all ails right there. Winning, winning can cure a lot. I, I, this one got personal though. Like when it's not personal and it's just griping over balls or who's going to get the shot or, hey, you're shooting too many threes. I need the ball. Like all of that goes away with winning. But when you start calling people bees and questioning like their manhood and, and, and things like that, that doesn't disappear. Like you can smooth over it, but it always exists somewhere there beneath the surface. And KD seems to be one of those guys that if nothing else can be sensitive at times and, I, and not in a bad way. Like we're human beings. Ooh, he is. Yeah. But I don't think for a guy like Kevin Durant, the way he was attacked, like as a man, and Draymond has a tendency. Look, Draymond is a habitual line stepper. You remember that? Like that's what he does. Like he he's over the top all the time. And you know, I was at times too. So sometimes you take the good with the bad. But the problem with that, and I've been in this situation a lot, is you wind up saying things that are hurtful to people, and you can't take them back when you really get you know angry. And he did that. And I don't know that they ever can exist the way they did before. Sure, winning cures a lot, but it doesn't ever heal that scar. That scar just kind of gets covered over. Yeah, especially when you're saying, according to a report from Marcus Thompson, like, hey, we won before you got here. You know, we're the sort of three all-stars before you got to that's town. Di- that's, di- that's dirty. <laughs> like, when you start talking to somebody like, like that, we you're talking to a greasy. Got here. Yeah, yeah. yeah. That, that, you, don't, you don't heal from that. Those are always there. One thing, too, in my time, you know, out in California watching him, little subtle things. So people are making fun of Kevin Durant in the construction suit when he did a little walk front there right. last week and kind of having fun. If you remember from the groundbreaking, actually, last year, it was Steve Kerr and Kevin Durant. It wasn't Steph Curry. It wasn't Clay Thompson. Yeah. Draymond Green. The franchise really wants to back him. He's really ingrained in Silicon Valley. He talks to a lot of investors. I mean, they all have, you know, the players have their own things, but KD likes that area. So it'll be interesting in terms of when we talk about taking sides, how much of it was strictly basketball and how much is, like, trying to protect a guy who may not be there this summer. Right. Well, again, if you're going to protect – and I know that Draymond – was part of building that dynasty there. Um, his style, the way it fit with what Steph and Clay and Iggy and all of those guys did. Like it, he's part of the, the, he's the, he is one of the nuts and bolts of that. But when you get a piece like Kevin Durant, I mean, as a franchise, it puts you in a tough spot because Kevin Durant is clearly the better player than, than, than Draymond Green. Um, people take, like people think that NBA players, because everyone can eat, everyone's made a whole lot of money and everyone's an all star and everyone's won a championship. Like, they're not like every other like person in the world where you can have some jealousy towards the guy sitting next to you, right? Even in, in workplaces, like there, there are people that, you know, we work together, but I could be a little envious of your situation. Do you know what I mean? Like that's human nature. Yeah. And so that happens in NBA locker rooms. And if you're that core of Golden State players, the Clay Thompsons, the Steph Curry's, especially the Draymond's, um, and you see Kevin Durant come in and you know, he's great. Like you've seen what he does and you know, he's the MVP, but deep down inside, as human beings, somewhere, there's a little resentment, right? When he is the one at the groundbreaking, wearing the hat, standing next to Steve Kerr, or standing next to the owner, or doing the gigs in Silicon Valley. That's human nature, so it's there. 
That's interesting because you have a unique perspective of both the player perspective in the locker room and also some time in the front office. Baseball and football, more roster spots, and I know covering those two sports, it gets clicky. Mm-hmm. Basketball, does it get as clicky? And if it is, can that, like, for instance, if, if Clay, who doesn't talk a lot, was like, man, like, we need to kind of get it together here and do our thing, or Steph, like, now you're having to have them choose sides? I mean, could, could that play a yeah, factor? That could be catastrophic. If you wind up having that locker room, fra- like, fa- uh, fracture, and you've got one group, and I saw that, in Cleveland early in the season when we were there and we weren't playing well that when LeBron first came back and we had a group with LeBron and then we kind of had a little subgroup with kind of like Kevin Love and it, it was just again it was snarky it was snippy it was like you know it was sarcastic at each other and and those that kind of tears at the fabric of who you are as a team so if it should you know turn into that in Golden State you know that that it, it could be catastrophic for them, and especially in a place where you're trying to re-sign a lot of guys. Like you got to lock up Clay, you got to lock up Draymond. Yeah, they both said they want to be Warriors for life. You got to lock up KD, who hasn't said that, but that's a, that's a lot of pieces to make sure you secure, take care of every one of those egos, and make sure that you put together the financial package uh, that they need. But I I've been on teams, so that was my front office perspective. Mm-hmm. I also, as a player, have played on really really good teams. I'm not going to say any names or anything like that, but played on really really good teams where you know I've made all defensive team. These are all stars now. They're better players than me. I just make all defensive team because they got to throw me something, right? <laughs> um, but I've had coaches come in and say, "Hey, man, congratulations on the all defensive team, man. It's pre- it's pretty, you know, prestigious honor. Like, congrats." But I- I'm not going to say it in front of the whole team because I don't want to make X, Y, and Z, you know, feel some kind of way. Mm-hmm. Like these are conversations that I'm having with a head coach in the NBA mm-hmm. about another grown man who makes Can't more, handle. who makes more money than me, who gets more accolades than me, who plays in all star games. But that that's kind of your job when you're in those positions because you know. Some of these guys are really, really sensitive. And if any of those guys are, it could get really messy in Golden State. It's different. Uh, Draymond and KD are teammates, but, um, you know, he got suspended in the NBA Finals. The spat with LeBron, well, a couple years later, he's on LeBron's HBO show. <laughs> job. So, this <laughs> right, guy, right, right. Time, they're all good. Right. So we may end up being, this may well, just end up being a footnote into another championship again as we talk. Correct. About. And sometimes when you're like Draymond or myself, like you fly off the handle so many times that people are like, oh, it's just Raj being Raj or it's just Draymond being Draymond. So there could be some of that too. One final note before we move on. Andre Iguodala, Iggy said, quote, I think it was an old school pimp that said, you can't climb a mountain if it's smooth. What? Pimping. Dropping the knowledge. <laughs> All right. That's a, a good first segment here. Uh, on Off the Bench. Coming up, we'll talk about CFP, college football playoff with yep. our guy, Chip Patterson. The CPP, the there Chip Patterson playoff. Okay. He had his druthers. <laughs> talk about All right. Welcome back to Off the Bench. Time to talk about the college football playoff. We got our guy, Chip Patterson. Who needs the CFP? When we got our guy CPP, the Chip Patterson playoff. Hey, so history in a sense. I mean, the college football playoff chip hasn't been around forever, but no change in the top 10. What does that say to you, my friend? I think that they have their opinions set, particularly on uh, two things. Number one, the top six. That seems to be where the committee has circled. And they say that this is the group that we expect 
the top four to come out of. The other thing that I thought was really interesting about no change is LSU sitting right there at number seven. They talked about this a lot on Tuesday night, and I think that it's interesting that with LSU, it continues a trend that we're starting to see with the College Football Playoff Selection Committee outside of that top six, where the committee is just holding on to what they think a team was or what they think a team could be and not really looking at what the team is right now. LSU, I think that that's a team right now. They've played their best football. Their best football was that win against Georgia. And since then, they've been all right, but that Arkansas performance was a little bit lackluster. you got to wonder if that team has peaked. And so uh, I, I look at this, and I'm just like, all right, okay, you're just sitting back, and you're waiting to see if Notre Dame and Michigan lose because they have said, and they, they explained this after the rankings, Alabama won, Clemson two, zero arguments throughout the room at, as far as that goes. All right, Chip, so you you touch on LSU, and it's always a source of a lot of conversation on this show. Uh, how, how do you feel the SEC was treated within that top 25 where they have those teams ranked? Is it fair? Is it unfair? Uh, Kentucky and Mississippi State do not deserve a spot in the conversation as some of the best teams in the country. And I think that uh, you could even go, you know, compare this ranking to the AP poll where you're starting to give uh, the credit that has been earned or deserved for a team like Utah State, teams like Fresno State, Boise State, uh, even UAB, Army. I mean, the, the top teams in the group of five are very, very good. And Kentucky and Mississippi State, again, like I, it, it makes sense that it's a bunch of former coaches and a bunch of the old guard of college football because they're just holding on to the idea that these Kentucky and Mississippi State squads, and even Florida for that matter, it just, I don't look at the quality of play and feel like they are playing their best at a time of year where normally the cream rises to the top. You touched upon the group of five, and I want to segue that. But before I do, you mentioned sort of the committee, right? Six new members, if I'm not mistaken, this year. This college football playoff committee was given a head start in terms of having a sample size of figuring out which teams were good. And the point was to have them have no fear, in a sense, to move teams more than four spots or five spots. It seems like they're just following the AP or the coaches' poll, where if you win, you go up two. If you lose, you go down three. Or if you SEC, you get you know some of a, a, a preferential treatment there in terms of the spot there, Chip. What do you make of that? I, I think that they are dealing with the best against the most deserving. And we like to talk about most deserving, but if you go to the charter, you go to the original documents telling the selection committee what they should do, they're only charged with picking the four best teams. And I think that that's why the SEC gets preferential treatment, because they've got better players. I mean, just the talent on the rosters are better in the SEC than they are anywhere else in the entire country. And I think that, you know, best versus most deserving, you know, we would like to think that the national champion is some combination of best and most deserving. But that's not what the selection committee is being asked to do. They're just being asked to name the best teams. And that's where I think they allow themselves uh, to talk themselves into uh, keeping a team like Florida, a team like Kentucky, a team like Mississippi State up in the rankings, keeping a team like LSU up there in the top ten. Listen, Alabama, Georgia, those two teams meet both of the criteria for me. Best, most deserving, check, check, absolutely. Uh, I agree that they deserve to be competing for the national championship. But if you're only talking about best and you don't care about most deserving, then I think that's where the teams that just have more raw talent are going to end up having an inherent advantage in this process. Uh, let's talk about some games this weekend. There's some huge spreads out there, but there are also a couple opportunities for maybe an upset. Who should be on the highest alert maybe this weekend? 
Notre Dame against Syracuse? I mean, do you think that that Syracuse defensive line that knocked Trevor Lawrence out of the game is not going to be coming for Ian Book and his hurt rib? I mean, Alton Robinson leads a Syracuse defensive line. They are number two in the ACC in sacks per game, only behind Clemson, and number 10 nationally. That Cuse defense is going to be getting after it all throughout the afternoon. So I, I think that Notre Dame's the one that you really, really got to focus on. And as you look here, uh, I'm going to go the West Virginia line looks scary, but guys, I really like West Virginia in this spot. I can't make heads or tails of Oklahoma State. They're what we like to call in fiction an unreliable narrator. They give you nothing that you can hang your hat on, but West Virginia, you know, they've got the elite quarterback play right there. So, you know, while that's the smallest spread, I really, really like the Mountaineers to make a statement there. No look ahead to Oklahoma. No look ahead to potential Big 12 championship game. You know, that's one spot where I think West Virginia is going to thrive. So you say Notre Dame is in danger this weekend. Let me give you the scenario again. Take me into the CPP, not the CFP here. Notre Dame, if they end up with a loss right here, and maybe the Ian Book situation plays a role in it, they beat Michigan earlier this year, and if somehow Michigan is in and Notre Dame is not, what does that mean? They have been so strong about head-to-head throughout this process But look at what's happened with Georgia and LSU. And what we've seen with them slotting Georgia ahead of LSU shows me that if Michigan and Notre Dame both have one loss, there's another tiebreaker there in the criteria. It's called championships one. If Michigan has a championship and Notre Dame, which does not play in a conference, does not, that is a tiebreaker that will get Michigan in ahead of Notre Dame. Notre Dame has no room for losses. If they take even a single loss, they risk giving up their spot in the college football playoff to a team with a conference championship that Notre Dame, by choosing to be independent, cannot win. All right, so let's end with that group of five question. You hinted a little bit with terms of UCF at 11, the highest that a group of five has ever achieved. Again, this is only, what, four or five years in the making, though. Then you get Utah State. You get Cincy and Boise, 23, 24, 25. Look, it's like the BCS era, Chip. You can have a seat at the table, but it's the baby one where you have the high chair and you can kind of just hang out, but you can't really eat right there. Do you envision the way that the college football playoff is constructed that we will ever see a group of five team in the top four? Not until the playoff is expanded. I think as long as it's four teams, the the group of five, because of, again, best is all they're asking for. They're not asking for most deserving. They don't care if you're the most deserving. If the selection committee does not think that you are one of the four best, you're not going to get in. So I don't envision it uh, at all. I'll tell you this. How about this, Rob said alert? I think Cincinnati wins that game. And I think that that takes the New Year's Six race and makes it all the more interesting as we turn our attention to the American Athletic Conference and the Mountain West. And yes, it is looking for that high chair at the table, but I mean, talk to UCF about that Peach Bowl. That thing, like those kinds of trips and those kinds of experiences really do inject so much life into your program. I still find a lot of joy in it, even though I know that in this system, a group of five team probably is not going to be competing for the national championship. Yeah, I'm a group of five guy, and that hurts my heart, man. But until they get to eight, that's the only way it's going to get done. All right, Chip Patterson, good stuff as always, sir. Thanks for dropping by. Yeah, welcome back to another episode of Off the Bench. Well, (laughs) you threw it to me there. I think we're at the top of the show. Anyway. uh, Segment, though, that's what we're doing here. Let's get to the Celtics, dude. Let's talk them. Uh, We talked about the Warriors. Uh, They're a bit of a mess. Celtics also have some stuff going on, right? um, They're off a five-game road trip. They lost four or five. They get to come home to Boston. The reintroduction of Gordon Hayward, I think, 
has been discounted. He's on a minute restriction. They're only playing 25 minutes a game. To get a guy on a minute restriction, you can't give him a fluid amount of minutes, right? Because what you're trying to do is save some of those minutes for when you really need them. Mm-hmm. So you might play him like 18, pocket seven. You might throw him out there for three. You still want to have four left in the bank. So what it does is it just kind of throws off the whole rhythm of what everyone's trying to do and what your team's trying to do. And Gordon Hayward kind of alluded to that. Um, he shared it with, with someone. He thought that that was affecting his teammates. Something is affecting them because while they're still like the top rated defensive efficiency team in the league, uh, they're playing really well. They got a 20, they're 26th in the league in terms of offensive rating, uh, 22nd in the league in terms of pace. They're third in the league in terms of three pointers attempted, which I think is another part of their problem. I think that they need to get back to the basket. I think that the three has become something that NBA teams analytically are fascinated with. Um, and in theory, if you have really, really good shooters, um, you should squeeze a few extra ones. But I think Boston is shooting too many of them. They're up seven attempts per game this year. I think it's affected the way they play. Boston has a handful of good shooters. Would you consider anybody great? No. That's the thing, right? Yeah. And it's not like you have some of these teams that have some great shooters. And to your point about Gordon Hayward, and I know that was you know talking to some of our writer guys and made some camp trips and stuff about the minutes restriction for Hayward. And that's another thing, too. It's like you got a... a, a a complimentary group there with some good players and even some great closers in Kyrie. When do you start figuring out to find roles? Because you got to at least at some point as you get closer to the postseason. Yeah, uh, they play 10 guys. That's it. I mean, and they play 10 guys who are all like guys. The only real role player, well, they have two. Like, no, nah, there are a few. Ojale's a role. Baines is a role. Uh, Marcus Smart is a role. But the rest of those guys, Morris, Rogier, all of those guys want to go get it also. So you're dropping a bunch of guys in who, A, all need the ball, right? And none of them have been really true role guys. They, right. they all think that they're the dude. Um, there have to be roles. And see, Gordon Hayward, the best part of Gordon Hayward is marginalized in Boston right now. Gordon Hayward wasn't like a fantastic score. I mean, he's a fantastic player, but the best part of Gordon wasn't his scoring or, you know, his jump shot. Like the best part of Gordon was that he was a big, like strong guy who could facilitate, run your offense, and he could score. And the ball's not in his hands to the degree that it needs to be to get the best out of Gordon, uh, because he's really good. And I, I don't know how you figure that out in Boston. Right. But so you talk about integrating Gordon Hayward. Of course, he's an all-star prized, uh, you know, possession that you got from Utah in the deal. So then like, what about the emergence of Jason Tatum? What about the reacclimation of Kyrie Irving? That's what I'm talking about. I didn't feel like there's an identity of like whose teams are going to be. Do you need to shoehorn Gordon Hayward? All of a sudden, if you're Brad Stevens, do you see, my goodness, we got Gordon Hayward here and I'm not sure how he fits. Yeah. Uh, it's a really weird conversation. Like on, on the surface, um, I would say, and I want to, I want to be clear, I'm not lobbying. I don't think that Gordon Hayward needs to come off the bench because he's not good enough, right? That's not what I'm saying. But in a scenario like that where you have a guy who's as ball dominant as Kyrie, and Jason Tatum is another guy who likes to dance. Like he gets the ball and he goes, he's fantastic on the ball, but he goes into these like five, six, seven dribble shot type of things. Let Gordon play with the second team and be the facilitator there. Like the problem is, you know, Terry Rozier's on the ball. So again, what you keep running into is you got all of these guys who need the ball. And it's great to have those options. In today's NBA, the floor is spread. You don't just need guys who are shooters, but you do have to have some guys who don't want the ball unless it's to shoot it. Not everybody needs to bounce it. The luxury that they have is, of course, being in the East. Philly with the Jimmy Butler, which we'll talk about. They are going to be a contender. Kawhi Leonard in Toronto will be certainly a factor, but their path to the finals will certainly be easier than it is in the West. Put on your front office cap again for me, Raja, and, and, and talk about 
presently constructed. I know it's only 15, 16 games in. You talk about the 10 guys that they play. What would they perhaps need to add or subtract to maybe make this a championship team? Um, honestly, I think you, you have to get off of, you have to get off of one of your guys that need the ball. Um, Jalen Brown? Yeah. And, but Jalen, 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 Jalen defends, Jalen defends, um, and doesn't need it as much. The three guys that really, really need the ball to be effective are Kyrie, Jason Tatum, and Gordon. Um, and Gordon is the most versatile out of those. Uh, the other two are just score. That's what they do. Um, you have to find a way to either not play them together all the time or get off of them to net yourself some guys that are more three and D type of guys. There's nobody on that roster that really screams three and D to me. Guys, just space the floor, stay out of the way, and lock up. Um, the problem with that is that type of talent is intoxicating, man. When you can roll that out and see what all those can, guys can do in a practice scenario, it's hard to imagine that when you rolled that out against an NBA team and you know you've got like the best players on the floor, that that's not going to translate into wins. But it's a chemistry thing. It's an experiment at times. And you can have you know five, six All-Stars. If they can't figure out how to play together or if you can't get them to play together, um, it doesn't always translate into wins. And so this is where we'll test. Like Brad Stevens will be tested. Because I've said for years, I think he's one of the best coaches in the game. I'm going to take the word young off of it because it's not about that. He's one of the best coaches in the game. Well, now you got to prove it to me. Now you got to show me that you can take this um, team that overachieved last year and get them to actually meet expectations this year. Because overachieving, like a lot of people can succeed in that situation, right? Like, hey, the world, it's us against the world, and you got guys motivated to go out there and prove that without Gordon and Kyrie, they can get it done. Like, that's an easy sell. The harder sell is, hey, listen, we're whole now. Gordon and, and Kyrie are back. I need you to take a little off your plate. I need you to take a little off your plate. Can they get them to buy in to do that and be successful? And the jury's still out on that. That'll be the challenge. Just last year, Hayward's out. All of a sudden, Tatum is thrusted into this position with no Kyrie, no Hayward, and he performed well. Yeah. Again, embarrassment of riches, so to speak. This year, you got all the weapons. You got all the tools. How are you going to use those weapons? How are you going to use those tools effectively? I th- So I think, again, uh, in pace of play, they're 22nd in the league. They need to pick the pace up. The problem is it's hard to be a really good defensive team when you're going to be pushing pace like that. Usually our Suns teams, like, our bad defensive rating correlated with our up-tempo style. You have to give up something if you're going to play at that pace. So on one hand, you want to be a great defensive team. It slows you down. But if you speed it up, if you speed it up, you don't have to worry so much about the chemistry. Because guys will get it in the flow of transition. Like, guys can get to the bucket, get buckets. You have to run less stuff because you're in transition. How do the Warriors deal with them when they were number one in defensive efficiency under Ron Adams? And I know they're not near the top. They're, they're close top five now. But that two, three years ago when they were on fire, number one defensively, still had that offense. Yeah, I don't I don't have the answer for that. Um, you know, pace is something that you have to practice. You have to practice at pace. You don't just get out there and and play with pace like you it's something that you have to practice day in and day out and make a concerted effort from the start of training camp for that to be the dna of your team um and when you do that you can learn how to defend while playing with pace because you know you do it every day in practice you see it every day in practice but if you're not practicing like that um i don't know how boston would be able to implement it it's not something that you just kind of flip the switch so for a team like boston if they picked up the pace, you may see slippage defensively. It doesn't mean you don't have to be number one in the league defensively. Yeah. Like you could be number seven in the league defensively. If you if you become a better offensive team, it kind of balances out, or maybe it tips the scales in your favor. I don't know. Yeah, the one thing though, the Warriors we mentioned shoot, they can shoot much better than the Boston yeah. Celtics can, and that could be a, a reason why they had it there. All right, so we will get to the Sixers and the debut of Jimmy Butler, Sixers Magic. Um, but we want to focus on the other side of that trade and the Minnesota Timberwolves hosting the New Orleans Pelicans. 
I almost feel like this was, in a way, addition by subtraction. I know you lose a four-time All-Star, yeah. and it's Jimmy Butler, but obviously they paid you know, Carl Anthony Towns, and you got Wiggins there. And so here's a chance for Tom Thibodeau to have a team that includes Robert Covington now and Dario Sarge. How do you think the situation in Minnesota is going to play out? I think it's going to be a lot a lot healthier of an environment to be in now that Jimmy Butler is gone. And that's not throwing shade at Jimmy Butler, but that situation had gotten so toxic um, that you needed it gone. You needed it removed from the locker room so guys could just focus on, on the task at hand, which is winning basketball games. I also think that Robert Covington was one of those guys that I kind of alluded to that the Celtics may need a 3 and D guy, like a really, really good shooter, long, rangy defender um, who will get down and play. That will help in Minnesota. Uh, Dario Saric, a stretch five, like a guy who can step out and knock down the shot. He's a really good player. They tried to get him over from Europe for years. He was having a lot of success in the EuroLeague. So it's another good piece. So, yeah, you give up Jimmy Butler, but you got some good pieces to add to what you do. And you spoke about Carl Anthony Towns um, and, and, and Andrew Wiggins. Now you guys got to be breadwinners. Now, now we got to see what you're made of. And, you know, the narrative was that neither one of you guys had those type of chops. But the, it's yours now. And so let's see what you got. I know that Tom Thibodeau um, is a good coach. Can he wear on you? Is his style um, uh, grinding? Yes. Uh, does it produce? Can he get teams into the playoffs with that kind of style? Yes. And fortunately for like Minnesota's, I don't think anyone's shooting for championships right now. If you can just become a viable playoff entity in the Western Conference right now, year in and year out, I think that's a win for Thibodeau. I think Thibodeau's safe. I think Glenn Taylor and, and ownership is good. I think the city's fine with that. You don't have to win championships, but those two guys have to prove that with the supporting cast that they have, they can get it done. So they ended that uh, long playoff drought 14 years last season, and so now you get uh, what it looks like Jeff Teague, Wiggins, Covington, Gibson, and Towns in the starting five and off the bench, Rose, Sarich. Not a bad combination yeah. there. I know it's a tough, ultra-competitive West, but again, maybe it works out well for them in mesh as well. Yeah, and D. Rose is playing fantastic. I won't give a shout-out because like last year I questioned whether he even wanted to play basketball anymore. He's had a, a It's been a renaissance year for him. There are some pieces there. Um, the question is going to be, and Jimmy Butler it might prove to be right after this thing is all said and done, are Andrew Wiggins and Carl Anthony Towns, or is one of them cut to be the dude who carries you to playoff contentions? Because, look, this isn't throwing shade, and I don't want to be like this about Kevin Love, but I'd have this argument when I was in the front office with the Cavs about how good Kevin Love is. And, I'm, and my thing was, I think Kevin Love is a fantastic player, but he's been a fantastic player, and his teams have never gotten to the playoffs. So that's not, like, that. that's when you're building championship teams, you can be a really good player on bad teams. You know, the mark of a true, like, great player is whether you can be a really good player on teams that get to the playoffs and vie for something. And that's the question about those two. All right. We'll look forward to that one, T-Wolves and Pelicans tonight. When we come back, we'll talk more association stuff as well as the Chiefs and Rams being moved to L.A. instead of playing it in Mexico City. We'll talk about that next Look at them. Music. Hey, like oh, leftovers. Graphics. Graphics. Yeah. That's how Welcome do back here. to Off yeah. the Bench. Roger Bell and I'm Tommy Tran filling in for Danny Cannell. Uh, Danny was here. We would talk about Chiefs and Rams going to L.A. They're not going to play in Mexico City in Estadio Esteca. You talk about the NFL trying to reach out. They do the London thing every year, done mm -hmm. it for years. Uh, the Raiders played the Texans and then the Patriots. This year was supposed to be Chiefs and Rams. But they said the field with concerts and other soccer matches, not exactly for oh. play. Um, yeah, that yeah. doesn't look good. Although, I mean, look, they, they, we're going to put a new sod and put in new grass. But look, it's done now. They're going to go play at the Coliseum in L.A. 
Um, a lot of it had to do with the Players Association saying they didn't want to go. What do you think? Uh, look, if you're going to have the quite possibly the biggest game of the year so far, um, while laying new side and all that stuff is good, I mean, I'm not a groundskeeper, but that stuff's going to be pretty loose. It's probably still going to be pretty messy. You want that game to be decided um, on a fair and even playing field uh, and on the best playing field they can have. So you can have your best game uh, be the best product of the year. So moving it, I think, is the right answer. If, if, if in fact... That field, and by the by the look of that picture, it, it looked horrible. I say, yeah, they did the right thing by moving that game. It sucks for the fans in Mexico, like that stinks. But you want them to have your best product on a big stage and have everything go well. Mexico City will get another game. The NFL wants to expand out there, and logistically and geographically, it's closer than London, so they can sort of maybe um, continue to build that brand. The interesting thing too is that these two teams are arguably the best in their conference. You talk about just each team with one loss. So, again, to your point, if you're going to play the game of the year, you know, you want to be able to do it. And I think even the Chiefs, it's surprising maybe a little bit. that We're willing to go on the road yeah. instead of the road road to, to, to play this game and pull this one. Totally, totally. Um, and it's going to be – look, it's going to be exciting. It, it, both the Chiefs and the Rams um, are electrifying offensively. I like my offensive football, so I'm, I'm ready yeah. to see what happens. Can't wait for that one again Monday night. Um, all right, so let's finish up with a couple of association topics, and we'll get to Jimmy Butler, as we talked about with the Sixers. But let's talk about the Lakers. Yeah. Some dude named LeBron James playing against uh, the Blazers. It'll be their third meeting. Tyson Chandler's played very well for the Lakers. They're 3-0 and since he's come over. Uh, and so what do you make of this game? And, and a lot of people wanted to discredit Portland, said that the 3-seed last year was a fluke, and here they are still performing well. No, yeah, Portland's a really good team. The only thing I've ever had a beef with Portland with is – the size of those two guards and not having like a really, really good length at the wing position and a good wing player because sometimes that doesn't translate into playoff wins. Now, it's really good in the regular season. They've proven that. So I think this is a statement game for the Lakers. I mean, it's not a make or break game, but it is really good litmus test to see where they're at um, in, in terms of trending after they got Tyson Chandler. I thought it was interesting. Like there was so much panic around the way the Lakers have started this year. And these were LeBron's stats in his prior destinations. His rookie year with the Cavs, these were the way the teams began the season through the first 13 games. They were 4-9 and nine with the Cavs his first year. His first year with the Heat, they were 8-5. and five. His first year back with the Cavs when I was there, he was 6-7. and seven. And this year, they're 7-6. and six. So that's right, you know, along the lines of where his teams, you know, traditionally start. Um, so the panic was interesting. They're clearly playing a lot better. There were some holes defensively. Tyson Chandler makes up for a lot of that. Not just his physical presence, but what he brings to the game mentally and just with his leadership. Uh, so I think they're in a good spot. Now, they have to figure some things out. They've slowed the game down. They were trying to get up and down. Um, and outscore can't everybody shoot right now. Either that's the thing they want to get up and down and shoot. Can't really do it right yeah, now. Yeah, and and like we talked about, Gordon Hayward kind of being marginalized in in Cleveland. That marginalizes the best part of LeBron. Like it marginalizes LeBron. It takes away the best part of what he does. He doesn't play with pace. He's one of the slower pace players in the NBA. So they found a little happy medium with that, and this will be a good test for him. All right, so that'll be the test again. Already the third matchup, of course, uh, in the division right there with the Blazers and Lakers one on one this season. All right, we've been teasing about it the entire show. <laughs> Jimmy Butler, the wait is almost over. He's in a six-year uniform. Can we call it a big three with him, Ben Simmons, and Joel Embiid? Yeah, I think you call that a big three. It's a young big three. Um, but Joel Embiid is the best big in basketball. Um, ben Simmons has potential to be, you know, a, a, a game changer like like LeBron. I mean, he 
I don't know that he'll have the platform because he's alongside of Embiid, but if you put him on his own team and let him kind of figure things out, he has that type of game where he could just dominate on all three levels. Um, and Jimmy Butler's fantastic. So yeah, I think you gotta say they're a big three. The question here again, uh, the same thing we talked about with Boston, chemistry. Like how does Jimmy Butler approach being integrated into what they've got going on there in Philly? Is he, humble about it does he go in and try to make it work or does he go in there guns blazing this is how this is what winning looks like i was going to say because what you saw in minnesota which was a little bit of that does that give you any concern about this which is again a much younger team more talented yeah you could argue but it's also a young team. i think you'd have to be concerned now the one thing you have going for you in philly is you were a playoff team last year and you and those those two guys um are different than carl anthony towns like last year i thought cat Joel Embiid, nah, it's not even a question anymore. It's Joel Embiid, mm. right? And you got Andrew Wiggins and Ben Simmons, nah, it's not a question anymore. It's Ben Simmons. So, like, there's a little more cachet already there in Philly. They've already been to the playoffs. But you do have to be concerned because Jimmy Butler now starting to accumulate a bit of a track record in terms of, like, not fitting in all the time where he's been. And so it, uh, I am concerned. I'm interested to see how it plays out. We talk about it this hour of playoff basketball, playoff shooting, they don't have Saric anymore, which they shipped out. Ilyasova was gone as well. So you're basically relying on J.J. Redick, Bellinelli. Larry Shamit, Bellinelli, yeah. Markel Fultz. Yeah. <laughs> Jimmy, Anything but shooting, right? Jimmy Butler, enough. <sighs> enough to do what? Enough to win the Eastern Conference? Yeah. Yeah, he could be. He could be. Um, the Celtics don't get things figured out. If the Celtics aren't the best version of the Celtics, it could be enough. Um, because they would then have enough firepower to beat Toronto, uh, or to beat Milwaukee if, if Philly's playing the best version of their basketball. Um, and that all kind of, you know, obviously that there's a lot of things that have to take place. Yeah. But if Boston reaches like their optimum level, then I don't know that any of those teams have enough to, to knock off the Celtics. That'll be interesting because right there, we'll talk about, I'm sure, in the pod, Kawhi Leonard and the Raptors, Mike Budenholzer and Giannis with the Bucks. They've certainly increased their pace of play. And don't forget about Victor Oladipo yeah. as well. So the East may be weaker than the West, but uh, as we're taking a look at the odds to win, it's uh, pretty competitive, I would think. Yeah, there's some really good teams in the East, and they're young, which is kind of fun, right? Because the the power like usually shifts in the NBA. It's been in the West for a minute, but, but uh, you could see it kind of starting to shift back to the East because these are some young teams that are set up uh, to be good, you know, going forward for a while. All right, that was good stuff. Hey, thanks for letting me hang today. Oh no, dude, you were great, man. Thanks for driving. We're such I a new driving. network. I think I'm like the only, honestly, the only host that's worked every shift, and now I can check off off the bench. I'm on every show. You've been, I've been on, on every show. Max preps, <laughs> fantasy football. We have to have a HQ. We have a cake or something. Nah, a don't worry about it. No, like, just, no, just no. Don't tell them that they'll put me on another show. <laughs> okay, so appreciate it, Raja. Yeah, no doubt. What, which one of these games is your favorite tonight? Blazers, Lakers, or uh... she looking at Jimmy Butler? Yeah, I want to see how that. Goes. All right, well, we'll be tuned in. All right. Thanks for joining us, everybody. We'll talk soon.